0: Good to be with you today. Uh, I'm Steve Harris, and um, when we started New Life Community Church back in 1997, we established a mission um, vision and a mission direction for our church that beyond building our own church that we would uh, also have a church planting missions emphasis. And we established a, a, a title of this Direction called Mission Twenty Twenty. That was twenty-three years ago, and our goal was that by twenty-twenty, that we would have sponsored the planting of over two thousand and twenty churches. Well, we didn't reach that goal. I didn't have a clue how we were going to do it back then, um, but it was something to shoot for. And we did begin an Acts One Eight strategy of church planting, of planting churches locally. Uh, our Jerusalem nationally, our Judea, interculturally, our Samaria. Samaria was close by, but a different culture, and then internationally. And through that process, we have seen over 200 churches planted. So you take one zero off of 2020, and we came pretty close. So, um, but little did I know what year 2020 would look like in 1997 when we established this ministry. Uh, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? A guy was talking to his friend recently, and he said, Is it true that you are an Orthodox Jew? And he said, Yes, it is. And he said, Is it true that according to the Hebrew calendar, it is now year 5,780? And he says, Yes, that's exactly what year it is. And he said, Then can you tell me what happened with the election at the end of 2020? Ha. It's been a different year, hasn't it? Here we have been uh, in our homes. uh, You know, we have many homeschool families in our church that do an incredible job of educating their children at home. But there have been many that have been forced uh, into into homeschooling uh, with their kids at home and uh, realized that it wasn't quite as easy as they thought it might be. One lady said that she um, got up early one morning. And she said, uh, Tammy next door, who was homeschooling, trying to homeschool her kids, she said, I saw her come out and she got behind the bumper of her car and she got down on her knees and she had a razor blade and she was scraping off that bumper sticker that said, my kid is a terrific kid. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and a uh, lady said she heard her doorbell ring and she went to the door and there were two kids standing there with backpacks. And she said, can I help you? And they said, yes, our mother sent us down here and told us to tell you that we are your foreign exchange students today. (laughs) So it's a crazy time. The state of our nation is on all of our minds right now. The national impact of the COVID-19 virus, the racial unrest, the political division has all taken a toll on us. According to a recent survey, survey by the American Psychology Association, which just came out a couple of weeks ago on October the 7th, um, they, they showed that Americans, um, that 77% of Americans were saying that they're deeply, deeply worried about the country's future. 71% said this is the lowest point in U.S. history that they can Remember? Now, how do we, as the people of God, as followers of Christ, as Christians, how do we respond and how do we um, respond and, and deal with what's going on in our nation right now? Well, if you see things that you know grieve the heart of God, we need to grieve. We need to let ourselves grieve deeply. And we need to be concerned about our nation. But we do not need to worry we do not need to despair. We do not need to be stressed out or distressed. Why? Because God is in control. God's got this. God knew what was going to happen with this election. He knew what he knew what is going to happen in the future of our nation before the foundations of the earth. Whatever happens in the future of the United States of America, God is already there. So let's make no mistake, God is deeply engaged in this. Now this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at some ways that God works with nations and how that might give us an indication of how He views our nation and all that is going on here. Now let's make no mistake, God still deals with nations, not just individuals. It says in Psalm thirty-two, twelve. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. And it says in Proverbs 14, 34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, if it was not possible for a nation to be blessed or reproached by either righteousness or sin, then this promise would have never been given. Psalm chapter 1 and 2 kind of are the introduction to all of the psalms. And Psalm chapter 1 is an overview of two different kinds of lifestyles. And the blessing or the curse that comes upon an individual depending on whether they live according to righteousness or live according to unrighteous. But Psalm 2 moves from the individual... ...to a nation. And it shows us how God deals with nations... ...and in the same way that nations are both blessed and cursed... ...depending on how they relate to God. Psalm 2 plays out like a great uh, theatrical production... and ...and it flows through four distinct acts. And they capture the drama and the ultimate destiny of every nation that has ever existed and every nation that will exist. So let's let the spotlight shine brightly on these four acts this morning in order to get God's perspective on how He deals with nations and how that relates to all that is going on in our nation right now. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1. And as we look at these first three verses, think about the last six months, the last year. 2020. And I think you're going to see that verses 1 through 3 are almost like a commentary or a summary of all that has happened in our nation during this last year. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us the psalmist asked the question why do the nations rage have you seen a nation in rage this past year how many so-called peaceful protests have turned into anarchy rioting vandalism injury and murder have you seen any examples of governor government leaders plotting and positioning for control? Have we not even seen that in front of us even this last week? Now what's happening is ultimately we're seeing a rebellion of a nation against God as we have moved farther and farther away into a godless society. What has happened is that we have seen a move towards the secularization of our nation and secular humanism is the philosophy that is propagated in the entertainment industry, the media, the government, the universities, the business world. God has been expelled from almost every area of perfect li- uh, public life. And then something like 9-11 happens and someone says, Where was God? We've expelled Him from our schools. We've expelled Him from the media. We've expelled Him from the entertainment industry. We've expelled Him from public life, from business life, from government life, and then we want to know where he is. And so it's a wonder that Christianity has as much influence as it does in our nation. But the influence that we do have is because of the great work of so many evangelical churches have done in building disciples of Christ, like New Life. Now, verse 3 says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The bonds here are referring to guardrails and restraints to hold people back from activity that would be dangerous or harmful to themselves or others. And political leaders and leaders of our nation, they don't like those restraints, they don't like those guardrails, they don't like anyone telling them, This is right, this is wrong. And so the moral principles of Scripture have been replaced with a new morality and a wokeness of acceptance and support of any lifestyle that anyone chooses to adopt. Now, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where God has been separated so much from our nation as a whole? Well, someone and many have used falsely the term separation of church and state. Now, first of all, I want to say that separation of church, that term, separation of church and state, is not contained in any government document. The term separation of church and state was used by Thomas Jefferson in a letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association in 1802. And in that letter to them... He was reaffirming that government does not have a right to establish a state religion or to intervene in the free exercise of religion. Not that God should have no place in public life. That's not what it meant. Or in the government. So we see that God is working now. And we see this move away from him. But how does God respond to a nation that plots to eliminate him from their public life? Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here in this, we see a second act in this great theatrical production we call the United States of America, And it is at to the response of divine control. Now lest you wonder if God is not interested or engaged in what's happening in our nation. You can be assured that God is deeply engaged in everything going on in our nation. And nothing happens apart from His permissive will. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds him in derision. When God sees plotting against him, his first response is to laugh at the futility of it. So a school superintendent comes to a high school student and says, you're not allowed to pray at the beginning of a football game anymore. And God goes, ha! And someone comes and says to the valedictorian when they, before they give their speech at graduation, you can't mention the name Jesus in your speech. Ha! And God laughs at them. And he holds them in derision. But then God's laugh quickly turns to a furrowed brow. And then it says in verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So while God laughs at the presumptuous plots of the nations, he also responds with wrath. Disobedience triggers Yahweh's anger and often results in disaster. Now we've seen this down through history as we've seen great civilizations like the Roman Empire. The book, The Fall of the Roman Empire, is a fascinating book as it shows how they ultimately fell because they rebelled against the ways of God and rejected the wisdom of God in the way that they ruled their kingdom. Now, one thing is very clear in the history of nations, and that is that God judges every nation based upon their relationship to Him. Look at Jeremiah 18, verse 7. <clears throat> if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, then I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. But And, and, and if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build it up and plant it, And then if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, he's talking about nations here. Government leadership ultimately rises up from the grassroots of its population. Do we need to be reminded that it was American citizens who voted in this last election? And the candidates were very clear about what they stood for and what they will do if they are elected. God establishes kingdoms and government authorities. And many nations get the government leaders that they deserve. They rise up from the population. And maybe there's times that you've been disenchanted when you come and you finally come to a national election and you look at the final candidates and you say, is this really the best our nation can do? Am I choosing between... The lesser of two evils? Or am I choosing between the evil of two lessers? I don't know. But the answer is yes. Yes, this is the best we can come up with. But it says in Romans 13... Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who will resist will incur judgment. Now, uh, there's something I don't understand fully, and that's how this would apply to a nation like the United States of America, who basically we were formed The American Revolutionary War was, uh, uh, we rebelled against the King of England, right? And we we declared our independence from the King of England. And there are times for civil disobedience. We see that time after time in Scripture. But there's a general principle here. And the remarkable thing about this is that Paul is writing this to the Romans in the context of, of them being under a government that was led by Nero. And we've we've told you many times from the pulpit here all the horrible, horrendous things that Nero did to the Christians. He hated Christians. And then we see it over and over again in Scripture. Romans 9 tells us that God established Pharaoh in Egypt to do what he did to accomplish God's ultimate purpose with the children of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who was a wicked king, got a message from God. Cyrus, the king of the Persians. Jesus told Pontius Pilate, who was an evil governor, he told him to his face, he said, you have no authority apart from God the Father. So here's the deal, guys. The next president of the United States of America will be a puppet in the hands of God to accomplish his purposes in our nation. It says and, and what we see is that when God lifts His hand of protection, it is because He has a higher purpose that He wants to accomplish. It says in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. How much clearer could this be? Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we see the third act here is the establishment of a messianic reign. Enter the hero. The one who will ultimately rescue us and resolve the horrible tragedy that we found ourselves in in this broken nation of ours. We see that in spite of the insanity of national leaders who have been drunk with the obsessive quest for power, it all ends in futility with the death of these national leaders and their ultimate judgment before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Think of all of the great revolutions in the past and all of the great world conquests in the past. The genocide, the wars, the conquest, the rulers like Alexander the Great who conquered the whole known world, all of the emperors of Rome, the czars of Russia, the Fuhrer of Germany, the kings of England. You know what they all have in common? They all ended up in coffins and their bodies are turning into dust more and more every day. (coughs) But there's one king who did not stay in the grave. One king was assassinated by power-hungry Jewish and Roman leaders. The Roman soldiers could not hold him in the grave. The plotting of Satan could not destroy him. He rose from the grave. And he walked around on the earth for 40 days. He was seen by over 500 people. And then he ascended up into heaven where he sits to intercede for us. But he's not going to stay there. He's coming back. He's going to establish His messianic reign. And when Jesus comes back, He's not going to be coming back on a humble donkey. He's going to be coming back on a war horse. And He's not going to be coming back to take up residence. He's going to be coming back to take over. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Now ultimately, this initial reference was to David, the king of Israel. But David, it then moves from David as the lesser king to Jesus as the greater David and the greater king. Jesus is coming back. He's going to set up his messianic reign. And we as his children, we are now in training for reigning with Christ for all of eternity. Anne Graham Lotz recently wrote about the coming of Christ and the hope that it gives us. And this is what she said. You think the world is falling apart. Actually, it's falling into place, isn't it? God is just rearranging the chessboard, just preparing everything and everyone for Jesus to come back. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned of rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all ...who take refuge in him. So now this last act of this great national drama... ...it draws each and every one of us... ...straight into the middle of this great theatrical production... ...called the United States of America. There is a script, a part to play... ...that has been handed out to each one of us. And the fourth act of this play is the application of individual response... What difference can you make as a follower of Christ in this nation? What difference can one person make in a nation? Let me ask you this. What difference can a tiny little mosquito make when it's flying around in your bedroom at night and you can't sleep? You can make a lot of difference. Bring yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He will protect you. He will glorify himself in your life regardless of how you have been affected by the things that are coming. Let me offer two ways that each of us can respond to this that will truly have a great impact on our city, our county, our state, and our nation. And I just pray to God that more Christians will be called into local government leadership. You know, someone has said all politics is local, and it is. I want to commend Glenda Weinert for running for county commissioner. She lost, but she ran. She put herself out there. And I commend her for that. So what can we do? First thing is that we can develop biblical conviction about national issues. I just want to say this. God stands high above any political platform. And His Word examines and it renders judgment. Judgment of the issues that we face as a nation, and it cuts through every political party of, and, and, and uh, every political platform. As Christians, we should be studying our Bibles and developing biblical convictions about national issues, and we should be coming out and we should be standing on those convictions that we have, and we should be sharing them with our friends and having as much influence as we can. We know we're not going to go wrong by following biblical uh, principles for national issues. Now maybe you're sharing a verse of scripture with someone and they scoff at you and laugh at you and say, you know, you can't legislate morality. Oh really? Think about it. Every law that is passed by any legislature, whether it is a state or a nation, every law that is passed is a rendering of a moral judgment Because that law says, this is right behavior, this is wrong behavior. Where's the authority for these laws? We have a great authority in the Bible. Unless someone scoff at that. Say, oh really? You're scoffing at the book that is the best-selling book of all time? You're scoffing at the book that was written over 1,500 years and 66 books compiled together, and there has been a miraculous preservation of it to the extent that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948, the biblical archaeologists were salivating over getting to those oldest 3,000-year-old manuscripts to see how they matched up with today's scriptures, and they were astonished to see how accurate they were. The whole occupation of the scribes in the Old Testament was to perfectly copy the scriptures, and once they finished a scroll of the Old Testament, It went through a rigorous process. And if there were any mistakes, that manuscript was was destroyed. So there is such a beautiful preservation of the Scripture. Then you have the eyewitness accounts of people who wrote what they saw. And then we've got all of the apostles who died a martyr's death, were tortured and executed because of how much they believed in what they wrote and what they said and what they saw. Then you have the fulfillment of, of prophecy. 2,000 prophecies in the Bible. Over 2,000 prophecies fulfilled in minute detail. What other book has ever produced that kind of result? 300 of those were messianic prophecies about what the Messiah would look like. What the Messiah would be like. And they were all fulfilled in minute detail in the person of Jesus Christ. I was in Greece in a restaurant... With my wife and got to have lunch with a Jewish rabbi and I couldn't wait to get with him because I just wanted to ask him that about that I said when you see all of the prophecies of the Messiah and you see what happened in the life of Jesus don't you think there's a possibility that Jesus could be the Messiah and he said oh absolutely I believe it's very possible that Jesus could be the Messiah, but there's a few prophecies about the end times that we're going to not know until Jesus comes back or until the Messiah comes back. And so I'm not going to put my, all of my eggs in that basket until it's all fulfilled. And I said, well, the problem is that it's going to be too late then. But we see the beauty of this. So you're going to dismiss a book that, that has that much evidence for its divine inspiration and authority? No, no, no. We stand with confidence. And it's totally appropriate for a senator, a congressman, to stand up and open up their Bible and read a verse and say, this, is, this, is, this gives us guidance and direction in what we should do about this national issue. So let's, let me just give you a sampling. I just want to give you a sampling of this because here's the thing. If you think God's position of every national issue lines up perfectly with your particular political party, then you may have set your political party up as an idol in your life. You may be worshiping your political party more than you're worshiping God. Now, that doesn't mean that one political party cannot come closer than another one to representing a biblical worldview. But the platform of a particular political party can fail to represent the full counsel of God on national issues. So I'm just going to lay out a sampling of some biblical worldview positions about national issues, and I think you'll see that the full counsel of God goes beyond particular political platforms. Just a, just a sampling, just five things, okay? One, Scripture reveals God's love and care for the poor. There's over 200 verses in the Bible that talk about the people of God and our responsibility to care for the poor. In the nation of Israel, He, he told them, when you bring in your... Your grain at the end of the harvest season. Leave some grain out in the fields for the poor to come and gather so they will have food to eat. Jesus said, when you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Jesus identifies with the poor. He said, I came to preach the gospel to the poor. He loves the poor. How can we look beyond the needs of our brothers and sisters and our friends who are poor? Secondly, Scripture reveals God's love and care for the immigrant and the refugee. Jesus and his family were refugees to Egypt. It says in Leviticus 19.34, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Now, do you think a verse like this should influence Followers of Christ in the way we think about immigrants and refugees. Now, our national policies regarding immigration and refugees can be very controversial. And we need to understand something. The government and the church have a different set of questions that we have to answer when it comes to immigration and refugees. We need to pray for the government. They have to figure out how many people they can bring into our country and the cost of bringing them in. And they have to figure out how they can assimilate them into our nation. And then they have to figure out in terms of national protection, which ones of those could be a threat to our national security as a nation. We need to pray for them that they will have wisdom about how to handle that. But the church, on the other hand, we're called, once they get here, We're called to welcome them, to love them, to treat them as our brother and sister in order to take advantage of the wonderful opportunity we have to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world has come to us. We have foreign missions going on every day in our nation and in our state, in our communities, because the world has come to us and, and they're living right next door to you. We have 10 million people in the state of North Carolina. 800,000 immigrants and refugees in our state. Many countries represented right here in Buncombe County. And part of what I do in my ministry is to set up teams to reach different nationalities. So we have a South Asian Indian team right now. I'm blessed right now with my budget to be able to hire a new contract worker who was a missionary in India and now he's going to put a team together and if you're interested in reaching South Asian Indians, he's going to form a team to reach them in our own community. We split up one day with our team and one one group went south, one group went east and my group went west. We started in downtown Asheville, we went all the way to Canton on Smoky Park Highway, every convenience store Every motel was owned by a South Asian Indian. (laughs) They're Gujarati. They're businessmen. And then all of the Indian restaurants are owned by Punjabi. They're Sikhs. They come from an agricultural area. A blessing to see them in our community now. And we can take the gospel to them. And that's what we're going to do. Thirdly, Scripture stands strongly against any kind of racism or prejudice. What can we do to, to respond to the racial tension in our nation right now? Primarily, put yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and we've had three baptisms today. These people have been baptized into Christ. They put on Christ. And what happens when they do that? Verse 28, There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you all are one in Christ. That takes away racism, it takes away prejudice, it takes away anti-Semitism. There's no place in the Christian's heart for any kind of prejudice or racism. Revelation 7 describes a great worship service in which people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people group, every skin color will all be gathered together around a throne in a great worship service. And they will be all crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So my friend, if you're uncomfortable being around people who are different from you, then you're not going to like heaven very much. Because it's going to be filled with all kinds of diversity. I love diversity. I don't think America should be a melting pot Melting pots all look the same. You know, when you look into that Brunswick stew, I think it should be like a tossed salad. You know, every part retains its individual beauty and uniqueness, and yet it all mixes together for a beautiful dish. That should be America, and that should be the church today. Next, Scripture is unquestionably and strongly pro-life. Look at Psalm 139, starting with verse 13. For you, in, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now, I've never seen this until just this last week. In your book... Were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here we see how intentionally and how intricately God is involved in the development of a child in their mother's womb. How could we possibly read this and not be deeply grieved and convicted about the fact that we live in a nation that has now murdered over 62 million babies? I'm surprised we haven't seen the judgment of God sooner than this now. And somewhere God has recorded in a book every tiny cell and body part of every baby that has ever been formed in their mother's womb. This is how special the life of a baby in the womb is. A mother's womb should be the safest place in the world, but it has now in our nation become one of the most dangerous places. The sanctity of human life is a really big deal to God. And it should be for us. And then lastly, Scripture reveals that God has established moral boundaries of sexual intimacy to be only enjoyed by a man and woman legally married to each other. It says in Hebrews 13, 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You see, God invented sexual intimacy to be a powerful bond, to bring a husband and wife into a one-flesh cemented relationship. It is so powerful that we must have guardrails of protection and only be practiced within the marriage relationship. We've moved to a nation of a new morality, of the belief that part of freedom is the freedom to practice sexual intimacy with anyone you desire. And if anyone says anything against this kind of freedom then now we're labeled as hate-mongers, as judgmental bigots. Who are we to tell someone else that their lifestyle is morally wrong? And the answer is, I'm not anyone. But the God who created them has every right in the world to give them and give us guidelines about what is right and wrong. Moral excellence and moral purity is a high value of God. And we see that the reason sexual sin against is, is so grievous is because we're sinning against our own bodies, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, this list of national issues, it just goes on and on and on. All of this that I've shared with you is just a small sampling to demonstrate that we need to embrace a biblical worldview of all the issues and not just cherry-pick the ones that line up with our political party. So in voting, you need to prioritize these issues and then rank them in order of priority for you as you're voting. You have a responsibility as a child of God. You don't get to do just what anything you want to do when it comes to voting and political involvement. As a child of God, you're bound to follow the Scriptures and the issues that the Scripture lays out. Now, the second thing and the last thing that we can do is that we can live out 2 Chronicles 2, 13, and 14. Look at verse 13. And sometimes we read, we read 14 without reading 13, but it comes first. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Now, we like to quote verse 14, but this sets the context God does send judgment upon nations. He does send pestilences. He does send plagues upon His people when they turn their backs on Him. Fourteen times in the Bible, God God sends a plague upon a nation. And so we ask the question, Is it possible that God allowed COVID-19 to get our attention? Absolutely. Absolutely. But then we read verse 14. What do we do about it? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, I want to say disclaimer this is not a promise for America, it's a promise for Israel. But there's a principle here we are now the people of God, and we are his people. And this promise will impact our nation if we follow it. We are the people of God. So what do we do? We humble ourselves. We come to God in brokenness. We even ask and beg God to show me, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything in my life that is coming between me and you that is not pleasing to you? Open my heart, God. Peel back the the onion layers of my heart. Show me anything and everything in my heart that is not pleasing to you. Now, why is that so hard for us? Because of our pride, because of our independent spirit. We don't like to admit that we're wrong about anything, do we? But here's the deal. Just on the other side of brokenness, confession, and repentance is an old rugged cross waiting for us to run to, to wrap our arms and legs around, to trust in because on that cross, all the things that God shows us about our heart, our sins were nailed to that cross. So we have nothing, we have no record to protect. Our record was nailed to the cross. My defense mechanism does not have to be set on hair trigger. I can welcome God to show me anything because as soon as he shows it to me, I can run to the cross. There I can get forgiveness. He will take away my guilt. He will take away my shame. He will provide inner healing. By his stripes, I'm healed. So I can be bold in dealing with my sin. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to play games. I don't have to be stubborn. I can welcome it because forgiveness is waiting for me. And it's waiting for you today. So where are you in this? Are you willing to establish biblical principles of national issues and stand on them with confidence? For you high school students, for you college students, we, we understand the, 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 the community that you live in and how hard it is to stand alone. And we realize that sometimes you're going to have to swim upstream like a salmon. But the question is, are you going to follow the current of this nation and this culture? Or are you willing to stand in the kingdom of God with the people of God, on the principles of God, and speak the truth of God, whether you're accepted or rejected or even persecuted? We need to be ready. We need to be ready for whatever comes. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Are you ready for that? Will you accept that? Will you stand up under it and bear it? Because that's where we may be headed as a nation. But I am 1,000% confident that we're following the ways of God here. And that he's given us direction in His Word that is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible. And we are standing on solid ground as we move forward. We need to be a light to our community. We need to have confidence and courage to stand up even when we have to stand alone. If you've never received Christ and He's not your Lord and Savior this morning, then you're on your own. I hope this was helpful to you, but you know, you're going to have to develop your convictions in some way it's a free country you can believe what you want but I commend Jesus to you today and if you accept him I promise you he will give you the gift of eternal life and one reason I know you can't lose it is because it's called eternal life it's forever and when you die when you become a Christian guess what you're never going to stop breathing because when you exhale in your last breath on this earth, you're going to inhale in heaven. Isn't that awesome? We're never gonna die, really. We've got a new life and it's eternal. Let's stand together for prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us, for your care for us. I just thank you that you've given us a sure foundation in your sovereignty, your control in the hope that we have in the ultimate messianic reign of Jesus Christ and that we will be able to reign with Him for all of eternity. This world is not our home. We do not have to be afraid of anything going on in our nation. You're, you're, you've got this, Lord. And I thank you that we can move forward with love for everyone that we see, every person we lock eyes with, whether they're Democrat or Republican, every person is deeply loved by God. Thank you, Jesus, that we can be a part of the bridge that will bring unity to our nation as we reach out in love and with confidence, whether people want to listen to us or not. Thank you that you've put us on the winning side. You've given us a sure record in your word of how to move forward and live our life your way. We thank you for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen.